Hello! I know I'm interrupting, but before this podcast, 3CR has an important public service announcement. Currently, we are running our annual Radiothon, where we ask for your donations to keep community broadcasting alive. We rely on your support to keep media alternative. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, I hope you enjoy your show. And everyone, welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie and Marcus, and we've got Zoe. Zoe's in the studio as well, even though it's raining, even though it's very cold outside. And uh, you're on 3CR on Solidarity Breakfast. And in fact, one of the reasons for why we've got Zoe and uh, we found that you're reliable even on this cold and wintry <laughs> night today because we're going to talk about homelessness, aren't we? Oh, uh, yeah. We, it's Homelessness Week. That's exactly week. right. And we thought that uh, this is a perfect time on a cold and rainy day to bring up the issue of homelessness. You were saying, Zoe, that uh, the statistics are being underreported. Yeah. Tell Um, us what you found. Just recently, because I live in the hills. Yeah. The Daniel Rangers. Which is um, even colder. Yeah, and more dangerous because trees fall during the... Yeah, when it's windy. Um, So I just recently went to an action group that's just started up and... um, yeah, the estimate of people who are working in homelessness, of the amount of people living in it, in our area who are living homeless is 500, but on the books it's 350. Well, yeah. yeah, so if you extrapolate that across the other areas, this will, that they're under-reporting it by about half. Yeah, nearly. And yeah. and the way that the census is done, it's just a, a snapshot on one evening and really... Um, yeah, that's it's 116,000 people across Australia and that's uh, an underestimate as well. So, yeah, and uh, home, just to give you an, a bit of a picture, um, homelessness has been increasing year after year after year after year over decades. Uh, just last year, uh, Sleeping Rough uh, had increased, according to census Stats, yeah, yeah, straight by, by 20%. Yeah, and interestingly enough, it's only a handful of people who are consistently standing on Parliament steps mm, yeah, on that's... a Wednesday afternoon to raise awareness of the fact that public housing is being handed over to private hands. Yeah, uh, the, there's a protest um, every Wednesday this month, 530 to 6.30 on the steps of the Victorian Parliament. Um, the, the 
argument is that if we were serious about, you know, providing public housing and did so properly, um, we'd be able to house not would be able to not only address homelessness in Victoria, but also um, house one million Victorians in public housing by 2020, and that's by using stamp duty and spot by purchases. Um, yeah, so that's we've got one million empty properties in Australia. I don't know if people are aware of that, but and also we've got a lot of vacant public housing. Um, yeah, they started to vacate in Victoria anyway. I, uh, from gathering information on the ground, I've been noticing that people began to notice that the uh, a part of the flats were not being filled in around 2006. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. right. So people were, even though we've got people on the streets, flats weren't being filled. Yeah, and that's happened. Like at this meeting, I met a woman who'd been involved in uh, an occupation of public housing in the 1980s. And, yeah, I got involved in this, you know, sort of regular protesting, campaigning, speaking on 3CR uh, from Bendigo Street. And I was just supporting the uh, protesters. Yeah, the occupation there. of houses that yeah. have been vacated and ultimately mm. have been sold on private markets. Yeah. People have to realise that. But what I found interesting about this was this a similar protest occurred in the 1980s and it had similar results. What was really successful about, I think, what was really successful about the Benigo Street occupation was one, the unions got involved. And uh, two, uh, people who had experienced long-term homelessness were housed as a result. So... And that's uh, true. That's what has happened. Yeah. People who were homeless and involved in the occupation were housed. And um, a friend of mine was involved in, yeah, getting people housing. Mm. So now, that, and the, I think the other aspect that people aren't, uh, aren't aware of when it comes to uh, people at risk of homelessness is uh, the new start rates. So they're far below the poverty line. Um, there's an anti-poverty networking campaign going on across Australia at the moment that the Australian Union of Unemployed... No, Australian Australian Unemployed Unemployed Workers Workers Union Union has been involved with. Um, And basically, you know, there's growing uh, pressure on government to raise the New Start allowance, but Scott Morrison, under his um, unfunded empathy... (laughs) <laughs> solo campaign yeah. um, is refusing to budge. Mm. So with the uh, protest you said every Wednesday at the State Parliament, is there any uh, independent politicians that are yeah. in support of the campaign? Yeah. There is. Yeah. There, oh, are, okay. there are a couple. Um, we've had pe- people from the Greens. We've had people from uh, the Victorian Socialists. We've had people from the Animal Justice Party come in and we've also had an independent politician uh, sorry we've also had an independent politician come in and I can't remember her name but she was all for uh, public housing and our protest and you can probably find her details on the public housing everybody's business website yeah yeah, through the week it was reported on the news about this uh, new initiative from the government on Vic Roads land to set up these portable uh, huts that are going to house homeless people 
And when that land's developed into road or whatever, they're going to move those huts onto new Vic Roads land so those people can go with it. Is that, does that address some sort of the, the problem of homelessness or needs to return to, to public housing? Not, public, not in your, public housing. Not, not this uh, public, private... People don't want to live in toilets. Oh, you and know? also it's an interesting thing because uh, the government is obviously realising that it, it, it is affecting public opinion. Uh, or else it wouldn't be coming up with answers because I know that following this whole issue, the uh, people like uh, Martin Foley, who is responsible for this area, yeah. has... It's uh, now Richard Wynne. Now it's Richard yeah. Wynne. But, it, but generally speaking, it's been this sort of off-handed uh, statement that uh, people are taken care of. Yeah. You know, we are taking care of people. Yeah. And this idea that... Uh, People who uh, need somewhere to live, uh, if they're moved on, that they will, they are all put into uh, a place to live. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. Um, but what when you actually ask people, which I have, I've asked people, you know, what they what actually happens is that people go to emergency housing. That usually means that they get put up at a hotel yes. for yeah. a number of days yeah. or whatever and then it and it's it's doesn't last right and so that's not a solution and i know that lots of people feel that you know it's all under control but it really isn't no, under control no. now uh, and people aren't uh, uh, hard-hearted you know they want people I mean and when you went to the Walker Street estate in Northcote Mm. uh, there were people that Mm. I talked to who came down from the houses from around yeah who who it it appeared they'd realized that what was going on was that um, that one there was going to be ongoing uh, destruction of uh, property there and then building for however long uh, which does affect their lives. But the, the people I spoke to, they were really shocked that mm. public housing was going to go on to the public, uh, uh, private, under the private mm. hammer. Yeah, I, I door knocked that area for the Victorian Socialists during the state election campaign and the plan, they were, the residents were saying they were going to, yeah, that land was going to be handed over to a private company. Yeah. And they were get, on one side was going to be the public housing, on the other side was going to be the private housing and there was going to be a great big... Yeah. Great big wall dividing yeah, yeah, the public yeah. from the private. Yeah. Like the, the public yeah, housing unreal, residents huh? were something lesser than the humans. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And not only that, the increase, the density will increase. The mm. amount of private dog boxes, I presume, will increase. Yeah. And it's all supported by this, these statistics and all the rest of it about how, you know, there's single household owners and all this sort of stuff. That's the increase and all the rest of it. But what it means is that there's a sort of social determinism going on. Uh, I mean, it's a bit like the George Calambaris thing, you know, where, uh, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I didn't pay people, you know, $7.8 million. Oh, but as it's been pointed <laughs> out, they don't overpay people. They only underpay yeah, people. That's right. And it's the same thing with public housing. They say to people, oh, you know, because, you know, people, they're their landlords. They say to them, oh, you know, you're going to go. Uh, and yes, you can come back. But in actual fact, they can't come no, back. No, no. They can't come back because if you've got a family of, that's you right. know, three children, you know, a flat that only has one bedroom will not suffice. No. <laughs> so yeah. you know, in the they, it's the matter of getting rid of people and then making people fit their fat foot into a too small shoe. That's what's going on. Mm.
But, uh, yeah, moving people, that's another way of moving people on, isn't it, really? Yeah. Uh, the same thing is going on with um, uh, caravan parks as mm. well. And that's so, exactly what I was so, going to get on to. Yeah. People who, who have – I've actually spoken to people who have invested in caravan to live in a caravan yeah, park. Yeah. They're getting older. They don't have uh, finance for anything bigger than that. But because it's privately owned land, it gets sold and they're left. They're destitute. Yeah. Yeah, what happened with uh, Edmond Turner and there was one person, well, if you want to look into that campaign, that was the One Turner Residence Action Group and Peter Gray just did a sterling job with that, uh, just an incredible man and was the rock of that Shokin community. What astonished me about that whole process, now that land was sold from underneath them for $36 million to a 30-year-old bloke in China, I think. No, he was lent the money by the Bank of China, so essentially the Bank of China owned the now owned the property. But what amazed me about that whole process, and one person ended up committing suicide as a result of, of that as well, um, just to highlight how serious this is, um, they were allowing people... The person, the person who this, the land had been sold off, and the person who owned the land was allowing people for four months to continue to buy in. <laughs> now think about that. They were buying into a property, buying to live on the on the land. They were buying in, not knowing that that land had been sold off. They were thinking that it was a caravan park. Oh, I see. So they yeah. thought that they had some How long-term... dodgy is that? That's really dodgy. Now, but the other thing, of course, is that underpinning all this is that people would say and the government would say that this kind of neoliberal uh, partnership between public and private and that the supreme uh, commercial interest is called progress, that uh, people who uh, fall by the wayside just uh, what what does that mean? What uh, I mean, we have a, an incompetent system that refuses. Well, people don't get increases of pay. People do get old. People do get sick. People do lose their jobs. They do lose their jobs. People do have caring responsibilities. Well, they say we're only six weeks away from having a wage to be and homeless if we do do yeah. lose our jobs or yeah, do yeah fall on hard times, get sick well, and if, can't go to work. If we continue on this trajectory, that's exactly what we're looking at. You know, that's exactly what many people have come... You know, I listened to a bloke just the other day uh, who ended up living 14 years homeless as a result of just losing his job. He not only lost his job, he's lost contact with his family as well. Yeah, everything about it. Everything. Just reminding listeners, they're on 3CR. This is Solidarity Breakfast, and we're talking about Homelessness Week. But it's not Homelessness Week, actually. It's Homelessness. Um, There were a couple of things that happened uh, for you this week, Zoe, because when they make it a day or a week, it's supposed to be focusing people's attention. You know, Mm. it's a promotional activity. Uh, but it's supposed to focus people's uh, attention. Not that it's very hard to be attentive to homelessness if you live in Melbourne because you see people all around, right, which is actually a political statement. (laughs) Yeah, it's a political statement that people are refusing to hide away, really. Mm. Um, 
Uh, but also it means that there's so many more people who are homeless than before. Mind you, I did hear a story ages ago that uh, down uh, down where the docks are, the, where the docklands are now, there used to be a tent city of homeless people. Mm. So this has been an ongoing problem in Australia, which was supposed to be rectified by... Uh, the uh, creation of public housing and well, other... It was initially. Yeah. A re- a, a, yeah when initially. public housing was available, you know, homelessness was rare Yeah, in this country. Uh, you know, that's not including Indigenous people, but, yeah, I, I, I interviewed uh, Lainey, uh, the person who helped people, uh, some people get housed... Uh, after, as yeah, after Bendigo Street, I interviewed her this week, and uh, she's sixty six years of age. She experienced homelessness in her youth. She raised her family in public housing, and she went on to work uh, to house women coming out of prison. Um, she's an absolute gem of information, but yeah, uh, she reflected at the in the initial stage of that interview on public housing and how rare homelessness was. So don't acclimatise to to homelessness. This is not right. It shouldn't be happening. And, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It shouldn't be happening. The reason it's happening is because we've been, well, government been uh, selling off and privatising public housing and they've been refusing to increase unemployment benefits. It sounds like the fight's only just starting. I mean, just around the corner, we've got the flats here and now a trendy part of Melbourne. I'm sure yeah. the government would love to get their dirty hands on that land and yeah. hand it over to their well, private actually, developer mates and well, create bloody apartments yeah, and for the yeah, rich. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, a couple of years ago, they were trying to take all the land around the towers. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that was fended off, which is, yeah, that was a plan that they were trying to do, initiate. Um, you've had a couple of, I heard you say that a couple of things happened this week uh, where you and your mate uh, decided to uh, some positive things, you know, okay, uh, individual pos- responses. Individual responses. Okay, so uh, a person I've, I've known for a fair few years, he uh, has a good wage, yeah, and is able to help people. And this story comes out of him being disgusted by people. Um, walking past or rushing past and stepping over people living homeless. So he uh, decided to sit down and have a chat with one of the people um, and ended up paying for his dental work to be done and the importance, well, not only did he need dentistry, he also had abscesses all through his mouth. So, so he, was in, he was in constant pain. Yeah, yeah. But it just shows what one per- I mean, one person has committed himself to do. I mean, it has helped somebody, yeah, you know. You know, it, it's done a direct action. Um, it, it's, it's a structural and a systemic thing that's going on. But it's pretty interesting, the depth of the need. Mm. I think a really big problem is that people aren't aware of um, public housing being privatised. They're fooled by terms such as affordable housing, social housing, community housing. You and know, it's all rubbish. Sort of it's, just, it's just a promotional it's, activity. But it's also deliberately confusing yeah. the community. Um, so when, for example, a new development goes up and they say, oh, there's 10% 
social housing, well, people think that that's public housing, mm. but that's not public housing. And, and it's still course, for private profit. Owned by a private company, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and also it's, and people have to remember that public housing was all about only quarantining a certain amount of the wage that you actually earn. That's right. Yeah. So with social housing, what they say is um, it can only be a certain amount of your wage. But what that means is they actually want at least 25%, uh, 25,000 uh, they they want a certain amount. You have to earn a certain amount of money to be allowed to be in social exactly housing, right. and so therefore it does fit on paper that they're only taking a certain percentage. Yeah, and out they of cherry the, pick as well. Yeah, yeah, and they cherry pick, and also they yeah, can, yeah, yeah. That they, they don't have any responsibility to uh, take on board the whole gamut of people that mm. require housing. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It, it's it's kind of like someone was saying, like primate behaviour, primate behaviour. That uh, we want to, we want these people, some people to be considered to be good, and those other people to be bad. And you're part of the good group, and those ones that are bad, i.e., people who have no financial support, that, that somehow or other they're morally bad. That's been going on for centuries. That's what I'm saying. It, it's called. Someone was saying that. Uh, you know, they try to make dress it up in a kind of scientific methodology by saying it's primate behaviour. Mm. But the the beauty of uh, humans is that our big strength is culture. You mm. know, and it might be that uh, uh, they're trying to uh, destroy people's ability to actually interact with each other. Yes, uh, which is our big strength. But you mm. know, it makes you wonder if. Uh, um, I mean, it's a bit like that saying that you can't eat coal or you can't, <laughs> you can't drink, <laughs> drink petrol, uh, but you can also not really have an ongoing relationship with a plastic doll or a piece of AI. <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah, Thanks, Thanks so much. Thanks for coming in and talking to us. Yeah, um, so, so just to... Um, Encourage people to come along to the Public Housing Everybody's Business uh, protest. That's happening this month, 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. Yeah. On the uh, Parliament steps? On the steps of the Victorian Parliament. Okay, thanks. Thanks.
feet, so I walk. If I can't eat, I'ma move till I find my piece of the pie, a dignified life. Wife and the kids deserve more than this. She waitress, he grave shift. Money keep on making it, bills keep on taking it. Spaceship ain't awaiting, but somehow I'm still an alien. Out of this world, outcasted, held captive by second class status. The factories closed, they no jobs at home. Wall Street broke, so they blame scapegoats. Jose, not Joe, getting stopped by Favo. How they become the border patrol? I don't know, but what I know is I'm here to stay. If they ask me for my papers, I'ma laugh and say. Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japurung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japurung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The cops are coming with eviction orders very soon. The campaign to protect country is led by Japurung traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japurung country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. You're on 3CR with Annie and Marcus on Solidarity Breakfast and apparently the D-Day for that particular uh, uh, issue is August the 22nd. Uh, Mel's, the uh, legal observers, have pulled... Called, done a call out for people to uh, be illegal observers because the eviction notices have been uh, served and they're expecting uh, action on August the 22nd. So if you're available, that is the time to particularly make your way there, to, uh, August the 21st to 22nd. Uh, they're calling for assistance. Uh, this week, Marcus, has been not just Homelessness Week, but of course there's, it's been the anniversary of the... Uh, uh, dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima, August the 6th. And uh, and as they say, if you forget your history, you're bound to repeat it. And uh, as people, even though people like ICANN have been pushing and the uh, Peace Network have been pushing to keep people's awareness of the dangers of nuclear energy and atomic power and war in general, there seems to be this uh, ongoing 
uh, idea from uh, the uh, corporations and governments that uh, we can become acclimatised. Even uh, the issue of nuclear power has re-entered the the, um, the the discussion because, of course, it supposedly uh, has no um, uh, emissions. But of course, you can never get rid of it, <laughs> and uh, and so that's something we're going to be talking about with uh, Cam Walker later in the program because of the gas and uh, all the rest of it. But before we do to uh, keep our minds aware of what's going on. Shirley Winton was talking at the uh, recent Fair Go for Pensioners conference. Now, uh, Shirley is part of ICANN, and uh, no, the um, IPAN, the Independent Peace... Um, what's the A stand for? Australia Network. Yeah, think, yeah. that's exactly Indep- right. Yeah. You got it right. <laughs> anyway, uh, you get the prize. <laughs> Um, we're meeting on the stolen traditional lands of the Koori Nation, never ceded. We pay our respects to elders and warriors past, present and emerging, their culture and the long struggle for justice and sovereignty. This topic may seem remote to what is being discussed today, but it is deeply connected to the theme of this conference, A Fair Go for All. Listening to speakers and discussion today, it's impossible to ignore the huge contradiction in our society, the contradiction between the enormous wealth created by the labour of millions of working people of this country on the one hand and the seizing of most of this wealth from the needs and well-being of ordinary people in the environment by a tiny handful of corporations. And here lies the source of most of the problems that we are discussing today. This is no more evident than the billions of dollars of public money the government is ploughing into the misnamed defence budget to support US military agendas and a handful of world's biggest profiteering multinational corporations who depend and thrive on wars of aggression and the world being in a perpetual state of war and suffering and the destruction and contamination of our environment. The taxes that we pay in the expectation that they would be used to meet people's needs for decent public health, education, affordable and public housing, a secure standard of living for all people and protection of the environment are instead committed to devastating wars and profiteering by the weapons corporations who reap huge profits from militarisation of the world torn by by imperialist wars. Australia's defence budget over the next few years is 200 billion. That's 200 billion of people's taxes will be spent mainly on Australia supporting political and military aggression and on multinational weapons corporations. The 200 billion defence budget is being spent on integrating Australia's defence and military into the US global war machine. And it's not for defending Australia, quite the opposite. Successive Australian governments' support for the US wars, expansion of military and intelligence bases and troops on Australian soil are the biggest threat to Australia's peace, security and sovereignty. The 2,500 US troops are now based in Darwin, which is being redeveloped as a major US military base for US Navy, Air Force and the Marines. It's similar to Okinawa and Guam, 
which are now full to the brim with US Marines, Navy and the Air Force. So this is one of the reasons for the increased militarisation of Darwin in Australia. The Australia's defence expenditure for the next 12 months, 2019 to 20, will increase to nearly 40 billion and continue to rise annually over the next few years. And we can imagine that a third of that 40 billion, how much that can be spent on the needs of the people. The world's top five weapons corporations with global profits running into hundreds of billions are registered in Australia. They are the US Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Boeing, Northrop Grumman and the British multinational BAE Systems. They receive billions of dollars of public funds in tax-free handouts from the government. Recently, the Australian government awarded foreign military contractors 73 billion in tax-free contracts because contracts made directly with offshore companies' head offices are tax exempt. Even for those with shell companies in Bermuda, the tax haven of multinational corporations. They are not required to pay tax on the profits made from this 73 billion tax-free gift from Australian people. The Department of Defence has revealed it spends one-fifth of its entire budget, the biggest procurement budget in government, on overseas military contracts. Lockheed Martin, the world's biggest and richest multinational weapons corporations, whose profits run into billions, paid no tax in Australia at all. Billions of dollars in tax evasions by these weapons corporations is not an exception to the rule, as most multinational corporations are siphoning off public funds from social and community needs and services that should be spent on Australia's people. According to the tax office, 15 of the top 21 companies paid zero tax for the three years to 217, including the biggest of them, the BIS weapons system. In January 2018, the government gifted 3.8 billion of public funds to the export of weapons. And the main beneficiaries of these are again, the global weapon, weapons corporations. Recently, the Australian government bankrolled Electro-Optic System, it's an, a so-called Australian company listed on the stock exchange, to the tune of $40 million for the manufacture and export of arms. Its main shareholder, that's the main shareholder of EOS, is US Northrop Grumman, who owns 20% shares in this Australian companies and will get the largest share of that 40 million of people's taxes. And that is not enough. The US government under both Obama and now Trump demand that its allies, including Australia, increase their military spending to support US wars. And you would have heard Trump Australia's alliance with the US drags us into global wars and enmeshes Australia, Australia's economy into the US military-industrial complex. It is a heavy burden on the people economically and militarily and makes Australia a submissive client of the USA. Um, manufacturing and shipping industries and local jobs have been decimated by neoliberal globalisation and the retired AMW members will be quite familiar with this. Would it not be in the interest of Australia's self-reliance, sovereignty and protection of local jobs for the money now spent on US wars and its weapons corporations to be invested into creating locally sustainable industries and secure jobs for all? Would it not be in the interest of people and the environment 
to channel the enormous wealth of our country away from wars of aggression to improving and securing a decent standing of living for all people, create secure jobs, build public housing, quality health and education, public transport, and developing def defence manufacturing industries for self-defence and not for offensive, aggressive wars and invasions of other countries. Capitali capitalism does not work for the people and we need to change the system. Uh, I just want to say that if anyone is interested in the Independent Peaceful Australia Network and what we do, um, please come and see me afterwards. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. And we're back. On Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, first up, we'll just um, plug a rally that's happening next Saturday, August 17 at 2pm at the State Library of Victoria, and it's hosted by the James Connolly Association of Australia. It's uh, The rally is British State Collusion Time for Truth, so yeah, they'll be assembling at 2pm at the State Library and marching to the British uh, Consulate. But now on the line, we've got Sheridan Tate from the Broadmeadows Progress Association. Uh, welcome to the program, Sheridan. Good morning, Marcus. So uh, through the week, you gave evidence at the parliamentary inquiry into uh, Victoria's waste industry. Um, so what did your submission include, Sheridan? Um, well, my submission include the failure of government to sort of act in this space that, um, that I don't think they... Well, I, I feel that maybe they don't really understand the length and breadth of what's out there and how it's happening, um, how it affects the community and what the community feels about it. So I was putting in my perspective as a resident that lives about 500 metres from SKM in Coolaroo, um, the impact that it's having on us and continues to have on us. And though we hear about all the major fires and incidences, there's um, regular minor um, events at these um, recycling facilities that... Um, it isn't getting media coverage and I don't think people are aware of it. And just the failure of EPA to, I think, effectively act in this space. And I think the other areas that I raised was the fact that we, you know, we're shutting the horse after the, bolt, uh, the gate after the horse is bolted, but we really need to act quickly because we're not doing anything in regards to how we're going to manage this waste and what we should be doing with it. And everyone just seems to be standing around scratching their heads while we're having daily um, reports of the massive stockpiles that are appearing and no-one knows what to do with them. And, it, you know, we've got really products out there that could be reused and are valuable and it does doesn't make any economic sense when we, you know, we aren't utilising these products and we aren't working for a circular economy and we aren't doing things like in Victoria introducing um, a container deposit scheme. I, I don't know what the problem is with the government that they can't act on, you know, in this space. Um, it's very frustrating. As you said, you live near the SKM plant. Uh, what are some of the effects uh, the numerous toxic chemical fires have had on your community? Well, we've had, the, of course, the case that's just um, come about this week where there was, um, you know, the people that were evacuated during the 2017 um, fire and there was a class action done. Um, I, I wasn't a participant in that action. I was actually interstate at the time of that fire and um, 
how the wind blew affected another um, area. It really affected Dallas. Um, so finally, after two years, that they've um, been awarded compensation, only to find that um, SKM is effectively being declared bankrupt. So I, I doubt very much that um, they're going to see any money from that um, that win. And I suppose the long term effect no one really knows because there's no real clarity or information as to what exposure is doing to people and what the risks are to people so you just wonder in 10 years time in these areas we're going to get massive cancer clusters and and the like um because of of the fallout from the fires and when um bradbury's happened um I was at work that day. I saw the smoke in the morning when I arrived to work. Um, I got a um, phone call during the morning from a government department saying I'm a resident close by. Where was I? Was I at home? Was I aware of the fire? All these things are very stressful. The same with the SKM fire. Um, I was interstate at the time, but my daughter was at home. That I've, you know, you have people ringing you saying, "Are you okay?" Well, you shouldn't be living somewhere where you you have to think, are you okay? Um, When is the next event going to occur? So the community is stressed. We're stressed because we we don't know how we've been affected health-wise by these um, incidences and when will the next one occur? Um, We've had, um, I think, we're up to 13 illegal stockpiles um, found throughout the area across Camberfield, Epping, up to Craigieburn. Again, how many more are out there? What are the risks to communities? And um, what is the long-term impact from not only the fires that occur, the environmental damage when there's leakages from these and spills from these um, premises? We've had our local um, lake and reserve, Jack Roper, been affected and effectively closed for two years because of... um, the chemical spills have done to the lake and then incidents of E. coli. Um, so it was open briefly. Um, and there's a group there, Sailability, that used to do sailing for um, people with disabilities. They can't do that anymore. So that's all these minor, you know, little things without throughout the community that has an effect on everyone and how we function in our day-to-day life. And as you mentioned, it's been yeah, one fire after another. So how would you describe the government and the regulators' work safe and the EPA's response to the uh, chemical fire situation? Oh, I think it's abhorrent. I don't think they've demonstrated any duty of care. I think um, the problem with EPA, I think they're massively underfunded and under-resourced. And the same with our local councils. Um, I don't think there's strong enough legislation um, even though they're bringing in new environmental laws in um, July 2020, um, we've we have got laws now and um, we have got penalties now. But it's it's no good having them unless they're enforced, and they need to be enforced swiftly. And there need to be serious consequences for the people that operate these places. Um, often, I've done a lot of research into this. You know, often it takes two or three years for things to get. Um, to court, um, in and often like with Bradbury's, it was four hundred thousand litres when EPA um, finally shut them down because their licence was for one hundred and fifty thousand litres. So you've you've got almost three times as much 
on site before they shut the company down. And when the fire occurred, they had um, managed to reduce the the stock on the site to 300,000 litres, but that's still twice as much as what they were allowed. You know, once they get one litre over their limit or one cubic metre or whatever their, their permit um, allows, they should be... Um, halted there and then, not wait until it's two, three, four times as much and then people are standing around scratching their heads and saying, well, what do we do now? Or, um, you know, a major event occurs because there's so much stockpiled in this, um, in, at these spaces. If I'm correct, the EPA paid a visit to Bradbury the very day before it went up in flames and yeah, they were operating on a suspended licence, was it? The EPA found out then they had double um, what they should have had and uh, they had the chance to act and they didn't. Well, they did that. and the, I, believe, I think it was four times as much. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was, no, I think it was 300,000 litres, so it was double what their licence was. But um, um, I'm not sure about that EPA visit the day before, but um, you're probably correct with that. Um, oh, it so, was, it was. It was um, profoundly... Uh, Coincidental, really, wouldn't you say? Well, <laughs> they bent it. They arrived the day before, and then it went up in flames. Well, the, that's often the the rumour. Um, but you know, these fires. Have, I've lived here at my in Coolaroo since two thousand, and we've seen not just recent fires. We've, we've had repeated fires from. Um, we've had early on, we had at Busy, we've had them, a lot of fires at SKM, a lot more than um, just the recent fires over the years. So I think um, right back, I've got a big list. That, you know, we, we had from December 2004, we had fire at Busy and then 2013, and then we had the t- Summerton Tip Fire, and then we had Tire Crumb and then Busy. Oh, and then The Tire SKM. one must have been outrageous. Oh, the t- yeah, I've got a great photo from my front yard of the smoke from the tyre one. Um, you know, so it, it just seems to be one incident after the other. And and if you run through EPA and, and start putting in um, the EPA side, I've just gone in there and, and put in the names of these companies or various suburbs, and then you'll get a list of not only um, uh, not so much the fires, but often... Other events where they've, you know, they've allowed um, contamination to stormwater. That um, that um, with busy they had, um, ex, you know, exceeded the amount of chemicals into uh, that was went into the atmosphere. You know, we've got things like dioxins and furans that are all classified as um, carcinogenic. Um, we've got a constant, supposedly steam that you see above busy, pretty much twenty four seven. Um, and that's really probably, you know, 700 metres away from my home and everyone else's home. And that's the other issue. There's no buffer zones. We've, we've got these residential zones that are so in such close proximity to to these sites. And there should be... Um, these sites should be removed away from residences and future planning should make sure that any sort of site like this, industrial, chemical, waste, it has a sufficient buffer zone from, you know, residential homes, from businesses, from schools, from kinders, from hospitals. You've got the Raven Hall tip. Um, they spoke, um, their group, Dr Tip spoke the other day. They were saying that 
literally the number of trucks that are there every day and how huge the stockpile is. And it's the odour as well. It's like here that you walk out on any given day and there's a smell. There's various smells. Where are the smells coming from? Some are obviously really chemical smells. Some are just vague smells. The community's always complaining about the smells. And often reports go to EPA and, you know, the feedback is that they don't they don't get a response or um I sent a report when um, Glass Recycling Services had a fire one night that, that's the sister company of SKM. It's next door. I heard the sirens. I'm getting a bit OCD now. I hear sirens and I'll jump in my car and drive around the streets with the camera to take photos. So this was after midnight. I went down, took photos, put a report into EPA saying what's going on, you know, another fire. I thought it was actually at SKM. It took ages for EPA to respond. And then when they did, they said, oh, oh they spoke to them, but um, that there was nothing going on, um, which was ridiculous because... Because there course, was they, something going on. <laughs> yeah, and then you were there. They, yeah, and then they actually shut um, GRS down. So to send me an email saying, oh, no, um, nothing to see here effectively, um, which is just ludicrous. Um, and like yesterday, yesterday um, I'm also a member of the Anti-Toxic Waste Alliance. We, we had um, several posts go up yesterday. Um, we've now got the, the unions are um, united and acting because of the um, toxic waste that's being dug up as part, you know, as a part of the Westgate. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And so we've got piles of contaminated um, soil now, you know, lying C-fest, around B-fest, the western B-fest. suburbs. Um, so B-fest. they're the other, you know, that's the other area that's been massively affected is the western suburbs. Um, we've got, you know, pictures of warehouses that are um, are full of waste because SKM and other companies. Um, have hired lease these warehouses to to store their their bales of recyclables in, and now that they've gone to the wall, it's really these these owners of these warehouses are, are you know left with piles upon piles, thousands of tons of waste material, and um, pretty much the um, the reaction is, well, you know, the the liquidators won't be dealing with the small creditors and uh, the problem becomes the the owner of the properties issue. It'll be left with the yeah, taxpayers to yeah, foot the bill to clean it up. But, yeah, toxic fires, waste dumps, are just that's a regular event in uh, Broadmeadows that the people of Broadmeadows are expected to deal with. I mean, it wouldn't happen in Turak or Brighton. So why do, you, why do you think those people come to places like Broadmeadows to set these type of facilities up? Is it the lack of regulation or the... Uh, uh, I think possibly, and and that's the other thing, you know. Um, it they seem to um, target areas that um, are of a different socio-economic um, level, and they so whether it's easy. And often these places already had, in, they've got so-called industrial industrial areas there. I think the reason that um, um, these were originally some of these places were manufacturing zones. So the manufacturing zones were possibly put close to to the um, where 
they they saw that they had a workforce. So this is a big um, housing commission area. There's still a lot of um, people renting housing commission homes or the original residents that have bought their homes. So they were the workforce for the manufacturing industries. So I think they located these industries initially close by, so they had their workforce there. But as manufacturing died and, you know, been shipped overseas, these sites are now becoming sites for, for waste. Um, you, you talked about money. Well, again, EPA put out uh, yesterday uh, a notice saying about the site at Lara, and now that it's going to be cleaned up, like they're doing something marvellous, but it's going to be cleaned up... Um, and may take three years, but the government's committed um, $30 million to start removals of the stockpiles. Well, to me, that's just... It's stupid that rather than starting at the bottom and addressing the problem and stopping, looking at other ways we can reduce um, our well, it's waste... Co- it's well, co- it's corporate welfare too, isn't it? it? It is corporate welfare, exactly that. So rather than... We can't you know, increase New Start because people are bludgers, but we can deal with uh, corporate uh, irresponsibility and illegality. Well, that, that's it. We, and we need to deal with it because it, it's, it's just ridiculous that, um, yeah, that these people just do this and walk away and the taxpayer is, you know has to fund the clean-up. You look at um, uh, the stall tyre um, site that um, in 2015, um, I think it was about August or July or something, the EPA issued what was called a PAN um, notice for them to clean up the site. They went through... They were constantly going back and trying to get the site cleaned up not acting on it. It took two years. Um, two years later, in about August 2017, they took over the site. By that time, the owner, the company had been sold off to a Panamanian um, internet marketing company that really means that there's no way they, they're ever going to um, get money back because they say, oh, we'll get money wow. back. You know, you've, how do you get money back from... You don't even know the directors or who owns it or anything. Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, people sell off the self companies. People go into liquidation, and probably after you know, we we have people go into liquidation and just reopen a few days down the track. Um, Phoenix, yep. Another name. Um, Incredible. It is. It's. Um, so, oh, listen, Sheridan, we're going to have to finish because uh, uh-huh. we're hoping that uh, not because we're not interested in what you're saying. I'll tell you what, we'll have to have you back on. and Or, in fact, we'd like to do a um, an event around waste and we'd love you to be part of the panel. Oh, I would be most happy to do that. But before I go, can I just plug two um, rallies that are happening today. Yeah. Um, so we've got the Upfield Transport Alliance, yep. and they're um, they're campaigning for the duplication and extension of the Upfield train line. Because stupidly enough, we've only got a single track um, for part of the line, so that affects how we get our public transport. So the rallies at um, eleven o'clock at um, Merlinston and Merlinston. Merlinston, and it's at the Bain Reserve in Merlin Street, Coburg North, which is pretty much um, near the station. And then also at um, 12 o'clock, I know the weather's not good for all these rallies, 
but um, Teachers for Refugees um, are holding a protest at MITRE um, at 120 Camp Road Broadmeadows. Um, and they're, of course, um, they're holding story reading about um, the effects on refugees still detained at MITRE and the other um, detention centres. So if people are available or interested, it'd be great to have you know, people down there at either of those rallies or both of them. Good on you. That's okay. You're welcome. Thanks, Sharon. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when a man who knows all about these things, Andrew Hasty to War, trained killer turned politician, not only trained killer, but a member of the Sons of God, expert, expert killers, trained to kill with a little finger. So when Andrew says we should stop ignoring the fact that evil, evil China is the Third Reich, Hitler resurrected, showing the Chinese apparently believe the Aryan race should control the world... Uh, how should we react, Andrew, to maintain peace? War, 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 kill, kill, kill. And in the same week, now let's go back a week when we commented on this gathering of so-called intelligence people and True Blue Aussie's representative was the minister for keeping us secure and overseeing concentration camps, razor wire and sink the boats, Constable Peter Duffer. And would they think all True Blue Aussies were zombies? And so in the same week as Andrew's timely warning about evil China, perhaps it was to check whether we are all Constable Duffers, which led two US of major warmongers to honour us with a welcome visit at the weekend to declare how important is our relationship, accompanied by nodding approval from our very own US of file sycophants. And doesn't there, doesn't uh, there, our US of close friends, close close friends and protectors, sincerity shine along with their gentility, despite carrying the awesome burden of the self-appointed guardians of world peace, the world buffer against the bad guys, and there's just so many bad guys. The Secretary for US of World State, Mike Pompeo or else, said that close, close relationship was unbreakable and it will remain unbreakable as long as you do what we tell you. Which includes pointing a few US of weapons of mass destruction at evil China, which, alongside that US of territory Pine Gap and US of train killers in US of Darwin and other places, should work wonders for true blue Aussie security if it comes to shooting these things at each other. And Mike said the US of could now plant all these missiles because its 30 or so year deal with evil Russia no longer applied. And why not, Mike? Because we tore up the treaty that said we couldn't. Oh, like you tore up the treaty with evil Iran imposed and pleased, and pleased a worldwide economic boycott because it unfairly observed the treaty, then blamed evil Iran for objecting a bit. Speaking of evil Iran, back to that unbreakable bit. I'm sure we can rely on our old friend True Luozzi, and indeed they can. But in a statement that would make Pontius Pilate green with envy, big supremo scuttled them more lash sun said True Blue Aussie would send train killer patrols to Iran, or just off Iran, to support the US of, but would not get involved in the dispute between the good guys, good US of, and the bad guys, evil Iran. Kill, 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 while washing his hands in the Straits of Hormuz. Told you the old Pontius would have been green with.
And it's wonderful news, because it's like old times again. Scuttle then spoke to new Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, Big Supremo Boris Joynum son, who's the only other close, close US of friend who's committed to joining the train killers in the Straits of... So it's back to those exciting, heady days of then US of Big Supremo George W. Bash the Workers ordering then Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country and true blue was he Big Supremo's tiny blyer and the little bald-headed bloke here back in those dark ages to join the Coalition of the Killing. Don't know if Boris also is prepared to send train killers but not get involved, showing, as Scuttle then clearly recognises, that sending train killers to support the US of yet again is not getting involved. With that logic running riot, conversations between US of Big Supremo Donald Trample the Poor and Boris and Scuttle them must reach astronomical heights of logic and intelligence. Oh, but of course, Constable Duffer is our example of intelligence, so so yeah. Silly, silly thought this, but one other way of not getting involved is not getting involved. As we reported last week, Donald, after modestly declaring himself the least racist person in the whole world, proven by the fact that Afro-American people have never been so happy with a USR Big Supremo, with that usual narcissistic modesty, fingered the real racist, a black congressman from Baltimore, the real cause of white supremacists running around murdering scores of people, and that sensitivity shone after the latest mass slaughter by a white supremacist caused by this racist black congressman. The slaughter down not only to black racism, but to mental health and hatred, and nothing, nothing, Donald pointed out, to do with the gun. The everyone has a right to as many as they like, innocent, much maligned gun. But having said that, Donald declared again with that narcissistic modesty that given the US of norm of mass gun slaughter, he had done so much to prevent it, more than any other big supremo ever. And just a touch unfortunate, he didn't tell us what. Back here, the government, via some junior minister assisting called Ben Morteen, announced a productivity commission inquiry into why red tape is so holding up resource project approvals. A major complaint of our highly esteemed resource industry. Well, when I say our, many of them are somewhere else's, but it's good of them to come um, to so care for Troubler, was he? They're prepared to come here and provide jobs, 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 and raise our living standards through the taxes they don't have to pay because that bit of the business is most definitely somewhere else. Because as the corporate sector keeps pointing out, it needs certainty. Presumably crippling, delaying red tape-like environmental effects processes. It's so frustrating. One frustrated resource executive, Chuck Bloated III, looked exasperated. When everyone knows, they're going to approve it anyway. And they always assure us their environmental impact will be minimal. A small price for jobs, jobs, jobs and economic benefits. If only the anti-progress, anti-Trublewazi greenies could be so reasonable. Like his honour in a case involving a major corporate figure found guilty of falsifying Leighton Holdings books with a potential four years in the slot.
Now, we all know that it's just bad luck that your common working class crim, like, say, a mother attempting to feed her kids, has no reputation to lose, no shame to feel, no problem getting work because they don't have work in the first place, and jail is the only solution, the lesson they need to learn looked after by the private prison system, unlike big corporate crooks who do have those mitigations. As he's on a ruled after hearing the prosecution's cruel demand that this corporate crook bloke called Peter Gregg be locked up. Thank goodness his honour understood. Poor Peter was a, a broken man because of the damage to his reputation, making it difficult for him to find work, and his second wife had left him, so clearly he couldn't go to jail as well. Not that I'm suggesting for one second there's a law for the rich and a law for the poor. We can imagine his colleagues discussing the reputation loss. How irresponsible of him to get sprung! And yet more attacks on poor caring employers. Thanks to workers themselves whose salary sacrifice, their caring employers are not responsible for meeting the caring employer's super contribution liability, an estimated one and a half billion a year into the pockets of the caring employers, which is obviously good for the economy, good for all of us, but it's a loophole evil unions have been attempting to have closed for eons. And finally, the government has done that, but it won't come into effect for eons prompting even the Institute of Public Accountants to uh, claim the delay is inexplicable. I would have thought it's very explicable. But anyway, see, if the salary sacrifice equals the caring employer's contribution, it's deemed to be the contribution. The worker, her or himself, meets the boss's liability. And the taxable income also decreases. So even if the sacrifice is less than the full contribution, the caring employer's percentage contribution is based on a lower figure than the real salary. Changing the law, just another example of how caring employers are crucified in this country. On common criminals, isn't it thoughtful of the mass media to keep us informed day after day, P1, leading the telenewsers, the life and times of some mass murderer's lump and prole widow? When might they realise we don't give a stuff? But then, on common criminals, thank goodness for Lord Rupert of Wapping outing these bludgers, dull bludgers. Payments to bludgers withheld, the headline screamed. More than half a million welfare recipients had their payments cut off for bludging instead of looking for work and attending appointments. Or worse, not turning up to work for the doll. Quoting that ever-reliable source, the Minister for Stuffing Up, Michaelia Kosh, the workers. Welfare recipients abuse the system and it should not be thrown in the face of the taxpayers who fund it. Whatever that meant, and surprise, surprise, the government is focused in getting people off welfare and into work. That's it. The best form of welfare is a job. And they're certainly half succeeding. They're getting the off welfare bit. That Lord, Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin story was followed next page by another group of bludgers on the public purse, the elite private schools. In this case, Lord Rupert bemoaning the closure of an expensive private school and not suggesting taking an extra one million for upgrades, which will be open at the end of the year, just as the school closes, is bludging on the public purse. 
Finally, back to the resource industry. Fossils Minister Angus Failure is still pursuing ways of reducing emissions and now we must have nuclear power into the equation. In two interviews this week on the ABC, one with the Socialist Party fossils person and one with nuclear advocate Ziggy Switchoffy Renewables, they didn't mention once, what do we do with the 200,000 year waste? Well, Angus and Ziggy know that's no problem. Their fossils policy will solve that. Good morning. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. And you're on 3CR with Annie and Marcus on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth on the line. G'day Cam, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah, you've uh, been you put out a release that relates to uh, well the federal government's desire for everywhere in Australia to frack, frack, and frack, and uh, that's around uh, a campaign where fossil industry conservative MPs and, as you say, conservative and business media are doing a campaign to try and uh, end uh, Victoria's moratorium on uh, fracking and offshore drilling. Yes, they are. And if we just go back a few years, it's important to understand that, um, you know, it was a fantastic community campaign that won the ban on fracking and the moratorium on what they call onshore conventional gas. So in Victoria at this point, there's no onshore gas drilling at all. And the fossil fuel industry hate that because it's an example for other states. So they've thrown a lot of time and a lot of resources at killing off. The, they, they can't kill off the ban because they know that the government in Victoria is very committed to it. So now they're trying to kill off the moratorium because if you have an example, it inspires other states. So when we won in Victoria, for instance, it inspired people in the Northern Territory. So they hate the, you know, the, this what they'd consider to be a bad example. And the Murdoch press is aiding them uh, by continually running stories. And we have... Uh, the Federal Minister, Angus Taylor, and even the Prime Minister now intervening and telling Victoria that we need to lift this moratorium immediately. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, before they were re-elected, I went to an event where uh, Frydenberg, who was in charge of uh, what they called uh, the Department of Environment and Energy, which sort of tells you everything, um, where he, he just said explicitly, and I remember it, he said that their policy is all all about coal and fracking, fracking, fracking. That's what, what it was going to be about. And they were going to pretend that the reason for why they were doing it was because they were going to bring down the price of gas and electricity. This is a furphy, isn't it? It absolutely is, and there's been quite a bit of information released uh, that shows that you would need to find a phenomenal amount of gas in Victoria in order, in, in effect, you need to flood the market to have any impact on prices. And really what's going on here is we have a federal government that for the last six years has aggressively pursued the development of an export gas industry. We're now the largest LNG gas exporter on the planet. And we have, a, in effect, a national grid. As we have for electricity, we have a national grid for gas. So half the gas that we produce in Victoria is shipped north and goes either into interstate markets or to export markets. 
So in effect, what's happening now is if you're turning on the gas at home in Victoria to purchase that gas, you're in competition with the international market. The international market sets the prices. So that's why um, gas prices are going up here. It's because of the export industry that the federal government has been pursuing very aggressively. And that's a remarkable admission from Mr Frydenberg that he'd actually, uh, you know, confess in a public space that it's a, that, you know, they would use this as a furphy argument because, you know, that is clearly what's going on. And yet um, information is used selectively in the media to say, oh, well, no, part of the problem is the supply. So that's the reason the price is going up. But, um, you know, the, the massive part of this is the reason we have a problem is because of the way the market is set up for export. Yeah, they refuse. Uh, in fact, people should be really aware that the federal government failed to quarantine domestic usage from that price arrangement. Yes, they did. So there's been this long conversation about what they call a domestic reserve. So if you figure out how much gas you need, say, in Victoria, and then you create new gas, then you save that that amount of gas and then you allow any surplus to be exported. And, you know, after having caused this problem, and we need to remember it's the same party that's been in power federally right through this process. So the federal government created this problem um, the export gas industry, when it came in, gas prices went up by a factor of about three. So they, they multiplied by three. It's been a disaster for local consumers. And now after and business. the fact, And business, of course, and manufacturing and, and you know, chemical feedstock. There are some manufacturing uh, processes that do require gas at this point. Um, and they would argue there isn't uh, alternatives that are commercially viable. So pushing manufacturers to the wall... They created the problem, and now after the fact, they're saying, oh, well, maybe we need a domestic gas reserve. But if you look into the detail of that, of course, the devil is there as well, because they're saying this will only be for new new gas projects. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're using it as a gun against our heads to try and lift the moratorium. So they've caused a problem, and now they're coming up with a solution, and they're being very devious in how they're framing that so-called solution. Yeah, because it's interesting, because when you come to political policy, etc., you often find that there's, you know, there's this and that and this and that, but this is such a clear, clear uh, um, example of, and I just really want to say it, it's their fault. You know, it is. They did this. It's their fault. So let's the move coalition on. coalition did this, yes. yes it's uh, their uh, fault. But they can't admit that, of course. And so now they're coming up with this domestic gas policy. But if we were to look at, well, actual real solutions, what are they? The first thing is this notion of energy shifting. So a lot of people, for instance, will use gas in winter to heat their houses, whereas if they've got a split-level air conditioning system, they can probably heat their houses for a cheaper rate, depending on the, the, the contract they're on with electricity. So you can help people to shift um, that would require state government intervention, you know, to help people around what appliances they use. But it is important to remember that a lot of our electricity needs... So if you're using gas for heating, um, then, you know, you should be using electricity instead. More renewables equals lower wholesale prices, which means more renewables is good for consumers. So we have multiple issues going on here. The other thing, of course, is the electricity retailers who, as we know, are price gouges. Yes. Um, so putting Another renewables... Another thing that was put in by government. Indeed. 
Uh, yes. So putting renewables into the system brings down the wholesale price. That doesn't necessarily translate through because of the price gouging into lower prices for consumers. So we need to keep on the case of the big electricity retailers. There's an, uh, a proposal coming for a cooperatively owned retailer in Victoria, an energy retailer, which I think is very exciting because that would be you know aiming to provide people uh, electricity at lower costs. Um, so, you know, it is a complex system, but um, basically the government federally has caused the problem, and I think it's very important that the state government doesn't fold to them. 75 regional communities in Victoria mobilised to win the gas ban, and they're supported by thousands and thousands of people in Melbourne. It was a really significant political victory, and it's essential that the Victorian government, that the government of Dan Andrews, doesn't roll over on this issue and give way to the forces of the fossil fuel industry and the interests of people like Angus Taylor, Matt Canavan and Scott Morrison. And just to remind people, they're on Solidarity Breakfast and we're talking with Cam Walker and we're talking about the gas. Uh, did you want to say something, Marcus? Yeah, you were saying before, if the, if the Andrews government does roll over, will the environmental uh, groups be calling on the unions for, for support and solidarity? To... Yes, indeed, we will. Um we work closely with unions and there's some really exciting projects like the Star of the South Offshore Wind Project in Gippsland. For instance, we're working with the MUA there because um, the oil and gas industry is in decline, whereas the Star of the South project would create exactly same sector jobs uh, and up to 10,000 new jobs in the construction phase. So we think there's lots of really good room to work with unions. Uh, the problem is, of course, that the fossil fuel industry works pretty hard to convince everyone, including some unions that we need gas uh, in effect to keep the lights on. So we work with unions, um, but yes, some unions still believe we need to be drilling more gas. Can I just go through some of the um, things that, because uh, this is the propaganda media arm uh, of this campaign that's coming from the gas fossil fuel industry. Can you go through some of the uh, myths that they will be pushing so that people can be alert to the lie? Yes, so the first myth is, oh, well, if we allow gas drilling in Victoria, it will bring prices down. That's not true unless you put a cap on the export market. It's also been said from research very clearly that you would need vast volumes of gas to have any impact on prices. Um, the other thing to remember is that they will say, oh, well, gas is a clean fuel and it's a, quote, a bridging fuel. We'll just use it for a decade or so until renewables work. And the fact is renewables are working now, storage is working now and gas comes with a very high carbon footprint because of this thing called fugitive emissions, which is the emissions that are released between the drilling and the processing and the use of the gas. So they'll be the two main things, the cost price and the clean fuel argument. Okay, and uh, I was kind of interested in the fact that uh, the idea that uh, the lights will go out, that actually Victorians have reduced their amount of gas usage and that uh, uh, we we produce enough for our, our needs. It's just that it's been siphoned, siphoned off. Exactly, yes. And there is no doubt that gas is in decline, natural gas, and that's why they want to frack gas, which is the, the gas that's harder to get to. So... If you've got a declining product over time, the only way the price can go is up because as things become rarer, as we know, the price goes up. So a much smarter move for a progressive government, for instance, in Victoria, would be to help people to do energy shifting, to make it so that appliances like induction stovetops and, and air conditioners that can heat and cool your 
home are available and are energy efficient. That would be a much smarter move than blinking uh, and giving into the fossil fuel industry and lifting this current moratorium we have on gas drilling. There's been a... Before you go... um the degradation of land in America in, because of um, fracking has been documented and there's been legal cases around it as well. But yeah. I've, heard, I've heard people from that industry talk about how there's uh, less violating forms of fracking. Is that actually content, uh, contendable? It depends on the type of gas. So when you talk about fracking, you're talking about a whole grab bag of different types of what they call unconventional gas, so shale gas, coal seam gas, tight gas in particular, but also deep natural gas. So there is an argument that natural gas could be drilled safely even at depth. So that's that argument, that oh, we're not using so-called invasive fracking technology. But the fact that we are now kind of, you know, rummaging around to drill this gas that no one bothered to drill in the past because it was too hard. And too, too expensive. Difficult, yes, and too expensive, indicates that we're getting to the end of the resource. So this should be the red light on the dashboard going, hey, something's wrong here. The reason we're getting here is because the resource is running out. So let's save ourselves a lot of pain in the future by shifting our energy use now away from gas rather than locking ourselves in behind this this, this gas final kind of gas fling development and lock ourselves into higher prices. So this is about having a bit of vision beyond the next two years. Thanks for talking to us, Cam. Thanks. Good to have a chat. Yeah, pretty amazing, isn't it? Sell your soul for a few pence for a very short amount of time, eh? Yeah, we were Marcus? told the same thing on privatisation, that yeah. prices would come down and what are we saying? Prices, buddy, yeah, go through the roof and there. You'd have to have rocks in the head to <laughs> believe those arguments. And then they, yeah, the same old <laughs> promise to people where it's going to mean jobs, but yeah, what, yeah. what price, the yeah. environment, yeah. Exactly. Ridiculous. We've had a pretty good uh, uh, morning. Um, we started off looking at... Um, Zoe came in and had a chat to us about homelessness week, but homelessness in general, really. And she was asking people to turn up on Wednesday at five at uh, Parliament Steps to be part of the um, uh, public housing uh, uh, group that uh, is trying to raise people's awareness of how important public housing really is and how it's how it's related to the increase in homelessness, this selling off of public land and the failure of uh, social, affordable community, all in inverted commas, to actually replace the importance of public housing. That's We, d- we did that, and then we moved on to uh, uh, Shirley Winton reminding us about the need for peace. And then we heard from yeah Sheridan Tate from the Broadmeadows Progress Association <laughs> talking about the uh, toxic chemical fire situation in Broadmeadows in the north and the current uh, parliamentary inquiry into Victoria's waste industry. Yeah, and uh, we, re- we really will uh, be doing a panel discussion uh, in October and uh, we're inviting people to come along. We need to still uh, fill our uh, Radiothon target and so there will be a little price attached to coming to the discussion, but that's just to ensure that Solidarity Breakfast keeps going and also that 3CR continues for another year. Yes, not too late to donate, of course, 94198377 if you haven't donated or if you haven't uh, Go fulfilled your pledge, yeah, yeah jump go. on the line. And That's right. We need, we, need, uh, we need about another, we need another $1,000 really.
Yeah, we do. But anyway, uh, and then we uh, talked to Cam Walker about the uh, the gas and uh, the um, conspiracy, really, of uh, government, uh, uh, com- conservative government, fossil fuel and uh, Murdoch media to uh, shift people's opinion about uh, uh, fracking and... Um, which is a completely unnecessary and destructive process uh, when we've got other uh, options. And uh, the uh, moratorium uh, finishes on June the 30th, 2020 in Victoria, so that's a date to keep in mind. Um, we've Oh, you're going to mention the uh, James Connolly uh, event again? Yeah, next Saturday, uh, Saturday, August the 17th, uh, commencing at 2pm, the James Connolly Association is hosting a rally at the State Library of Victoria. It's uh, titled British State Collusion, Time for Truth. They say lies, cover up collusion, shoot to kill and state murder, a Britain story in Ireland. So there, there'll be a, a rally at the State Library of Victoria next Saturday, August 17 at 2pm, and they'll be marching to the British uh, consulate. So get there at 2pm at the State Library next Saturday. And just to remind you about the rally at the up uh, to duplicate the upfield line, 11am at Merlins Road in uh, North Coburg North at 11am and also at uh, Mitre uh, at 12 if you wanted to go out there, 120 uh, Camp Road, Broadmeadows. The Teachers for Refugees are holding an event to uh, remind people about what's going on in that that policy area. Uh, But for people in real life, of course, the poor poor people who have been kept in... um, detention uh, for really asking for help, uh, which was their right. Anyway, that's the end for Solidarity Breakfast this morning. Coming up next is Asia Pacific. Oh, there was one other thing we had to remind you about. August the 22nd, the um, Dap Ruang Embassy. We might play this just to remind you how important this is. Red Alert. Numbers are needed at the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japarung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The cops are coming with eviction orders very soon. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarung traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarung country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. And as I said, MELs, the uh, legal observers, have called for people to uh, uh, go there, um, get in contact. Uh, August the 22nd is the day that uh, they're expecting the police to turn up. The um, uh, Asia-Pacific is on next, and we're going to go out with Waiting for the Great Leap Forward, uh, because we really are. (laughs) 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 See see you next week. Thanks, Annie, and thanks, listeners. Camelot for Jack and Jacqueline, but on the Che Guevara Highway filling up, 
with gasoline. Fidel Castro's brother spies a rich lady who's crying over the luxury's disappointment. So he walks over and he's trying to sympathise with her, but he thinks that he should warn her that the third world is just around the corner. Soviet Union, a scientist is blinded by the resumption of nuclear testing, and he is reminded that Dr. Robert Oppenheimer's optimism fell at the first hurdle. I hear is the sound of someone stacking chairs and mopping up spilled beer, and someone asking questions and basking in the light of the fifteen fame-filled minutes of the fanzine writer. Mixing pop and politics. He asks me what the use is. I offer him embarrassment and my usual excuses while looking down the corridor out to where the van is waiting. I'm looking for the right lead forward. Jumbo sales are all. There's still parties to be hosted. You can be active with the activists or sleeping with the sleepers while you're waiting for the drive to lead forwards. Ah,、uh, one leap forwards, two leaps back. Will politics get me the sack? Waiting for the drive to lead forwards. Well, here comes the future, and you can't run from it. If you've got a blacklist, I want. Revolution and cut out the middle man. Did you enjoy listening to that podcast? Here at 3CR, we're a community radio station, and you're part of that. Right now is Radiothon, when we ask our community to pitch in with a few dollars that can help keep media in the hands of our community. This year, we need to raise two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to keep the station on air. Any amount that you can afford makes a big difference. And it's really easy to donate. Go to 3cr.org.au/donate. Your support is greatly appreciated and helps us power radical podcasts for yet another year. Thanks, as always, for listening.